0: At the Navy Yard in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on Constitution Avenue, stands a small building that houses a memorial called the Chapel of the Four Chaplains Memorial. This Navy Yard is now a thriving industrial complex that still houses some components of the Navy, but few memories still exist of the shipyard that housed over 40,000 workers and gave us the battleships New Jersey and the Wisconsin, which, by the way, is a big attraction in its adopted port of Norfolk, Virginia few of the people at the industrial center today know that this memorial was a navy chapel in world war ii it was the chaplains of different faiths who tended to the needs of the scared and dying soldiers on all the horrific fronts of war chaplains who gave hope when there seemed to be none and chaplains who promised to deliver that last letter before pulling the lids down on the eyes of a dead soldier it was a brotherhood of men all serving one god and doing their best to understand how all this could be happening in God's world. This is the story of the four chaplains, borrowed from the inspirational website www.homeofheroes.com, which we suggest you support, as they are an excellent place to find the often forgotten stories of America's heroes. Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, histories and mysteries. This one from our Heroes series is titled The Four Chaplains and tells the story of the heroic actions of four U.S. Army chaplains who gave all they could, including their lives, to get as many men safely off the ship as possible in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic when the USA Troop Transport Dorchester was torpedoed 80 miles south of Greenland on February 3, 1943. John P. Washington was a Catholic priest from Kearney, New Jersey. Rabbi Alexander D. Good was a native of York, Pennsylvania. Clark V. Poling was a minister in the Reformed Church in America at the First Reformed Church in Schenectady, New York. George L. Fox, a decorated World War I veteran, was a Methodist minister in Gilman, Vermont. Brotherhood has nothing to do with the similarities between men. Even among twins, no two brothers are exactly alike. These differences can create challenges to family harmony, incite jealousy, and lead to sibling rivalries. At the same time, it is these differences that make a family stronger, better rounded, and best equipped to face the challenges of life. In times of crisis, when a family pulls together, these differences make it possible to approach a problem from different perspectives and find solutions for the common good. There is strength in diversity, and perhaps a family should rejoice more in the differences between brothers and sisters than in the things they share in common. In November 1942, four young men found each other while attending chaplain school at Harvard University. They had enough in common to bond them together. At age 42, George Fox was the older brother. The youngest was 30-year-old Clark Poling, and less than three years separated him from the other two, Alexander Good and john washington a common cause brought them together the desire to render service to their nation during the critical years of world war ii between the early days of may to late july the four had entered military service from different areas of the country reverend fox enlisted in the army from vermont the same day his 18 year old son wyatt enlisted in the marine corps during world war one though only 17 years old Fox had convinced the Army he was actually 18 and enlisted as a medical corps assistant. His courage on the battlefield earned him the Silver Star, the Croix de Guerre, and the Purple Heart. When World War II broke out, he said, I've got to go. I know from experience what our boys are about to face. They need me. This time, however, he didn't enlist to heal the wounds of the body. As a minister, he was joining the chaplain's corps to heal the wounds of the soul. Reverend Clark V. Poling was from Ohio and pastoring in New York when World War II threatened world freedom. He determined to enter the Army, but not as a chaplain. I'm not going to hide behind the church in some safe office out of the firing line, he told his father when he informed him of his plans to serve his country. His father, Reverend Daniel Poling, knew something of war, having served as a chaplain himself during World War I. He told his son, Don't you know the chaplains have the highest mortality rate of all? As a chaplain, you'll have the best chance in the world to be killed. You just can't carry a gun to kill anyone yourself. With new appreciation for the role of the chaplain's corps, Clark Poling accepted a commission and followed in his father's footsteps. Like Clark Poling, Alexander Good had followed the steps of his own father in ministry. His first years of service were in Marion, Indiana. Then he moved on to York, Pennsylvania. While studying and preparing to minister to the needs of others, Alex had joined the National Guard. Ten months before Pearl Harbor, he sought an assignment in the Navy's Chaplain Corps, but wasn't initially accepted. When war was declared, he wanted more than ever to serve the needs of those who went in harm's way to defend freedom and human dignity. He chose to do so as a U.S. Army chaplain. One look at the bespectacled, mild-mannered John P. Washington would have left one with the impression that he was not the sort of man to go to war and become a hero. His love of music and beautiful voice belied the toughness inside one of nine children in an Irish immigrant family living in the toughest part of Newark, New Jersey. He had learned through sheer determination to hold his own in any fight. By the time he was a teenager, he was leader of the South 12th Street Gang. Then God called him to ministry, returning him to the streets of New Jersey to organize sports teams, play ball with young boys who needed a strong friend to look up to, and inspire others with his beautiful hymns of praise and thanksgiving. Upon meeting at the chaplain's school, the four men quickly became friends. One of Clark Poling's cousins later said, They were all very sociable guys who seemed to have initiated interfaith activities even before the war. They hit it off well at chaplain's school. Sharing their faith was not just a first-time deal for them. They were really very close. They prayed together a number of times before that final crisis. The observation pointed out by Clark's cousin, Reverend David Poling, is of note for the men of whom he spoke were unique. Their close bond might easily have marked them as the four chaplains long before a fateful night three months after they first met, when their actions would forever make the title synonymous with the names of George L. Fox, Alexander D. Good, Clark V. Poling, and John P. Washington. The differences in their backgrounds and personalities could have been easily outweighed by their common calling to ministry had it not been for one major difference. Reverend Fox was a Methodist minister. Reverend Poling was a Dutch Reformed minister. Father Washington was a Catholic priest. Rabbi Good was Jewish. In a world where differences have all too often created conflict and separated brothers, the four chaplains found a special kind of unity. And in that unity, they found strength. Despite the differences, they became brothers, for they had one unseen characteristic in common that overshadowed everything else. They were brothers because... They all four shared the same father. The USAT Dorchester was an aging luxury coastal liner that was no longer luxurious. In the nearly four years from December 7, 1941 to September 2, 1945, more than 16 million American men and women were called upon to defend human dignity and freedom on two fronts in Europe and the Pacific. Moving so large a force to the battlefields was a monumental effort and every available ship was being pressed into service. Some of these were converted into vessels of war, others to carrying critical supplies to the men and women in the field. The Dorchester was designated to be a transport ship. All non-critical amenities were removed, and cots were crammed into every available space. The intent was to get as many young fighting men as possible on each voyage. When the soldiers boarded in New York on January 23, 1943, the Dorchester certainly was filled to capacity. In addition to the merchant marine crew and a few civilians, young soldiers filled every available space. There were 902 lives about to be cast to the mercy of the frigid North Atlantic. As the Dorchester left New York for an army base in Greenland, many dangers lay ahead. The sea itself was always dangerous, especially in this area known for ice flows, raging waters, and gale force winds. The greatest danger, however was the ever-present threat of German submarines, which had recently been sinking Allied ships at a rate of 100 every month. The Dorchester would be sailing to an area that had become infamous as Torpedo Junction. Most of the men who boarded for the trip were young, frightened soldiers. Many were going to sea for the first time and suffered seasickness for days. They were packed head-to-toe below deck, a steaming human sea of fear and uncertainty. Even if they survived the eventual Atlantic crossing... They had nothing to look forward to, only the prospects of being thrown into the cauldron of war on foreign shores. They were men in need of a strong shoulder to lean on, a firm voice to encourage them, and a ray of hope in a world of despair. In their midst moved four men, army chaplains, called to put aside their own fears and uncertainties, to minister to the needs of others. Perhaps Chaplain Fox thought of his own 18-year-old son serving in the Marine Corps as he walked among the young soldiers on the Dorchester, giving strength and spiritual hope to those he could. Before leaving, he had said goodbye to his wife and 7-year-old daughter, Mary Elizabeth. It was Chaplain Fox's second war, for the war to end all wars hadn't. In other parts of the ship, Father Washington likewise did his best to soothe the fears of those about him. As a Catholic priest, he was single and hadn't left behind a wife or children, but there were eight brothers and sisters at home to fear for him and pray for his safety. Now his closest brothers were the other three chaplains on the Dorchester. They leaned on each other for strength as they tried daily to meet that strength out to others. Surely as he prayed for his makeshift parish, Father Washington also whispered a prayer for Chaplain Fox, Chaplain Poling, and Rabbi Good. Not only had Chaplain Fox left a son and daughter behind, Rabbi Good had left behind a loving wife and three-year-old daughter. Chaplain Poling's son, Corky, was still an infant, and within a month or two, his wife would be giving birth to their second child. In time of war, perhaps being single had its advantages. With so many men crammed into so small a space, all of them so much in need of the ray of hope spiritual guidance could afford, Differences ceased to be important. All of the soldiers shared the same level of misery and fear, whether Protestant, Catholic, or Jew. The title rabbi, father, or reverend was of little consequence when a man needed a chaplain. A prayer from Rabbi Good could give strength to the Catholic soldier as quickly as a hymn from the voice of Father Washington could warm the heart of a Protestant. A Jewish soldier facing an uncertain future on foreign shores could draw on the strength of a Protestant to help him face tomorrow. When sinking in the quicksand of life, one doesn't ask for the credentials of he who offers the hand of hope. He simply thanks God that the helping hand is there. The crossing was filled with long hours of boredom and misery. Outside, the chilly Arctic winds and cold ocean spray coated the Dorchester's deck with ice. Below deck, the soldiers' quarters were hot from too many bodies crammed into too small a place for too many days in a row. Finally, on February 2nd, the Dorchester was within 150 miles of Greenland. It would have generated a great sense of relief among the young soldiers crowded in the ship's berths had not the welcomed news been tempered by other news of grave concern. One of the Dorchester's three Coast Guard escorts had received sonar readings during the day, indicating the presence of an enemy submarine here in Torpedo Junction. Hans Danielson, the Dorchester's captain, listened to the news with great concern. His cargo of human lives had been at sea for 10 days and was finally nearing its destination. If he could make it through the night, air cover would arrive with daylight to safely guide his ship home. The problem would be surviving the night. Aware of the potential for disaster, he instructed the soldiers to sleep in their clothes and life jackets, just in case. Below deck, however, it was hot and sweaty as too many bodies lay down, closely packed in the cramped quarters. Many of the men, confident that tomorrow would dawn without incident, elected to sleep in their underwear. The life jackets were also hot and bulky so many men set them aside as an unnecessary inconvenience. Outside, it was another cold, windy night as the midnight hour signaled the passing of February 2nd and the beginning of a new day. In the distance, a cold metal arm broke the surface of the stormy seas. At the end of that arm, a German U-boat submarine captain monitored the slowly passing troop transport. Shortly before one in the morning, he gave the command to fire. Quiet moments passed as silent death reached out for the men of the Dorchester. Then the early morning was shattered by the flash of a blinding explosion and the roar of massive destruction. The hit had been dead on, tossing men from their cots with the force of its explosion. A second torpedo followed the first, instantly killing 100 men in the hull of the ship. Power was knocked out by the explosion in the engine room and darkness engulfed the frightened men below deck as water rushed through the gaping wounds in the Dorchester's hull. The ship tilted at an unnatural angle as it began to sink rapidly, and piles of clothing and life jackets were tossed about in the darkness where no one would ever find them. Wounded men cried out in pain. Frightened survivors screamed in terror, and all groped frantically in the darkness for exits they couldn't find. Somewhere in that living hell, four voices of calm began to speak words of comfort, seeking to bring order to panic and bedlam. Slowly, soldiers began to find their way to the deck of the ship, and many still in their underwear, where they were confronted by the cold winds blowing down from the Arctic. Petty Officer John J. Mahoney, reeling from the cold, headed back towards his cabin. Where are you going? A voice of calm in the sea of distress asked. To get my gloves, Mahoney replied. Here, take these, said Rabbi Good, as he handed a pair of gloves to the young officer, who would never have survived the trip to his cabin and then back to safety. I can't take these gloves, Mahoney replied. Never mind, the rabbi responded. I have two pairs. Mahoney slipped the gloves over his hands and returned to the frigid deck, never stopping to ponder until later when he had reached safety that there was no way Rabbi Good would have been carrying a spare set of gloves. As that thought finally dawned on him, he came to a new understanding of what was transpiring in the mind of the fearless chaplain. Somehow, Rabbi Good suspected that he himself would never leave the Dorchester alive. He had no need for those gloves. Before boarding the Dorchester back in January, Reverend Pulling had asked his father to pray for him. Not for my safe return. That wouldn't be fair. Just pray that I shall do my duty, never be a coward, and have the strength, courage, and understanding of men. Just pray that I shall be adequate. He probably never dreamed that his prayer request would be answered so fully. As he guided the frightened soldiers to their only hope of safety from the rapidly sinking transport, he spoke calm words of encouragement, in the dark hull of the Dorchester, he was more than adequate. He was a hero. Likewise, Reverend Fox and Father Washington stood out within the confines of an unimaginable hell. Wounded and dying soldiers were ushered into eternity to the sounds of comforting words from men of God more intent on the needs of others than in their own safety and survival. Somehow, by their valiant efforts, the chaplains succeeded in getting many of the soldiers out of the hold and onto the Dorchester's slippery deck. In the chaos around them, Lifeboats floated away before men could board them. Others capsized as panic continued to shadow reason, and soldiers loaded the small craft beyond limit. The strength, calm, and organization of the chaplains had been so critical in the dark hull. Now on deck, they found that their mission had not been fully accomplished. They organized the effort, directed men to safety, and left them with parting words of encouragement. In little more than 20 minutes, the Dorchester was almost gone. Icy waves broke over the railing, tossing men into the sea, many of them without life jackets. In the last moments of the transport's existence, the chaplains were too occupied opening lockers to pass out life jackets to note the threat to their own lives. In less than half an hour, water was beginning to flow across the deck of the sinking Dorchester. Working against time, the chaplains continued to pass out the life vest from the lockers as the soldiers pressed forward in a ragged line. And then the lockers were all empty, the life jackets gone. Those still pressing in line began to realize they were doomed. There was no hope. And then something amazing happened, something those who were there would never forget. All four chaplains began taking their own life jackets off and putting them on the around them. Together, they sacrificed their last shred of hope for survival to ensure the survival of other men, most of them total strangers. Then time ran out. The chaplains had done all they could for those who would survive, and nothing more could be done for the remaining, including themselves. Those who had been fortunate enough to reach lifeboats struggled to distance themselves from the sinking ship lest they be pulled beneath the ocean swells by the chasm created as the transport slipped into a watery grave. Then, amid the screams of pain and horror that permeated the cold, dark night, they heard the strong voices of the chaplains. Shema Yisroel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai echoed. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I will be done. Looking back, they saw the slanting deck of the Dorchester, its demise almost complete. Braced against the railings were the four chaplains, praying, singing, giving strength to others by their final, valiant declaration of faith. Their arms were linked together as they braced against the railing and leaned into each other for support. Reverend Fox, Rabbi Good, Reverend Poling, and Father Washington said one of the survivors, it was the finest thing I've ever seen this side of heaven. And then, only 27 minutes after the first torpedo struck, the last vestige of the USAT Dorchester disappeared beneath the cold North Atlantic waters. In its death throes, it reached out to claim any survivors nearby, taking with it to its grave the four ministers of different faiths who learned to find strength in their diversity by focusing on the father that they all shared. On that day, they made their father very proud. The chapel of the four chaplains, became one of the most enduring tributes to Reverend Fox, Rabbi Good, Reverend Poling, and Father Washington. Time has dimmed the memory of the four great men, and with that fading memory, the chapel itself has slipped into the background of the American conscience. That memory is kept alive today by the Four Chaplains Memorial Foundation, whose vision is to impart the principles of selfless service to humanity without regard to race, creed, ethnicity, or religious beliefs. This is done through their scholarship program, their website is found at www.fourchaplains.org for being spelled out. It's F O U R C H A P L A I N S.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes Legends Histories and Mysteries. You can find more of our 1001 episodes at www.1001storiespodcast.com and by subscribing to our show at iTunes, Stitcher, and others. We are enjoyed now in over 200 countries with special thanks to the U.S., Canada, Great Britain, and Australia. We produce our shows in sunny Virginia Beach, Virginia. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash 1001heroes, and we like feedback by email at 1001 storiespodcastgmailcom at gmail.com. We ask you to remember America's heroes and keep our country strong, and a special thanks to homeofheroes.com. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.